church. If you have your Bible, please open it to the book of Esther, chapter 2. The book of Esther, chapter 2. We will be looking at verses 1 through 18 today. Here's God's word. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus has abated, he remembered Vasti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let young, beautiful virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of the kingdom of, the, of his kingdom to gather all the young, beautiful virgins to the harem and Susa, the capital, on the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vesti, displeased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem on the captives, carried away when King Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she neither had mother nor father. The young woman had a beautiful figure, and she was lovely to look at. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict was proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace, put into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. And when the young woman, and the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best places in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was doing and what was happening to her. Now when the time came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and ointment for women. And when the young women went to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, in the morning she would go out and return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. For she would not go to the king again, which the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the time came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, she, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except for, for what Haggai had advised her. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when she was taken to the king into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vasti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast, and he also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal 
generosity. This is God's holy word. Please pray with and for me. Father, it's often hard to understand where it is taking place in your word. Sometimes things are not always clear. Sometimes we like the spiritual insight to see what is taking place. And so that's why we need your spirit. That's why we need the counselor. For he is the one who allows us to understand the scriptures. Apart from him, we cannot understand it. I don't care how many books we read about the word or commentaries we read or sermons we listen to. If your spirit does not give us the spiritual insight into your scriptures, into your word, we do not understand it. We cannot comprehend it, nor can we apply it. So, Holy Spirit, forgive us for taking you for granted. Forgive us for thinking less of you. Forgive us for forgetting about you. But we pray that you will come today into this place during this time and help us understand the word of our Father. And through your power, you will help us to be able to apply it. It is in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. People love of heroes and heroines. We love historical figures, particularly those who have done great things in the past. Books and movies have been made about these men and women, and these people have almost been immortalized into our culture, placed up on a pedestal. And their life and their character and their achievements are examples for us. They they are held up and even idolized as models for freedom, for truth, for justice, for human rights, for civil rights, for peace and for unity, for strength, for courage, for womanhood, for manhood, for leadership, for virtue, for godliness. Who are your heroes? Who are your historical heroes? Who are the men and women that you hold up as models? of faithfulness, models for courage and leadership and strength. We all have them. I know I do. But there's an issue that we face with these historical figures. They can be presented to us in a whitewashed way where their vices and flaws are glossed over or even hidden. So we want our historical heroes and heroines to to be better than us, if we're honest. But they're not better than us. Even though they may have accomplished great things, that doesn't erase the truth that each of them have shades of gray about them. They possess great qualities, but they also have flaws and issues as well. And the same is going to be true of the two historical figures that we are introduced to in our text today in the book of Esther. We're going to see that there are shades of gray in God's people as they do life in shades of gray. Because life isn't always black and white, and we're not always black and white either. See, the book of Esther, chapter 2, it picks up four years later. Four years has passed since the king backstripped Queen Vashti of her crown, title, and position. Four years have passed. And so here we find the king in a much calmer mood, no longer angry. We find him reflecting upon 
what he has just decreed against his own queen. We find him remembering what has happened to her and what they did to her. And so the author is basically, he's, he kind of presents the king in such a way that he seems to have some regret. He seems to have some second thoughts about what they did to her. Verse 2, after these things, when the anger of the king was abated, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. There's regret. He seems to realize that his past decision has created another issue, and that issue is now he lacks a queen. He doesn't have a queen. And this is an issue that the young men who attended the king, they saw. They see it's the issue. They see it in the king's nonverbal that, verbal actions that there's an issue with him. And so these young men say, well, we're going to come up with a proposal to help out our king, to help out the one who's in charge of us. A careful worded proposal. Well, they can't tell the king what to do. They had to word the proposal in such a way that in the end, it would be the king's idea and the king's initiative. So what is this proposal? It's a contest. It's a game. It's a competition to find and secure the next queen of Persia. If this was happening today, it would be a reality TV show <laughs> called The Next Queen of Persia. The Next Queen of Persia. And in this competition, the contestants don't voluntarily sign up. You don't audition to be part of this contest. You are gathered up. You are taken. And no choice in the matter. The choice and the decision is already made for these women by the most powerful man in the world. A man who is often influenced by his own officials and, and advisors. And this competition is not for the benefit of the contestants. They're not going to get all these great gifts. It's for the king's benefit. It's for the king's pleasure. So he's going to get his new queen. And the one woman who pleases him would be the next queen of Persia. Look at verses 2 through 4. The author outlines the competition, this search for the new queen competition. Then the young men who attended him said, let the king, let beautiful young women be sought out for the king. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the young, beautiful virgins to the harem and suits of the capital under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. So he loves the proposal. And he issues a kingdom-wide order and edict to gather up all the beautiful women to be part of this competition. Again, it's an order. It's an edict. I mean, it's a law. They have to come. And what we see with King Erxes here is, once again, he is displaying his absolute power that he has in this kingdom, using it without any consideration for how it affects the lives of those around him. Everyone and everything in this empire exists for the king's pleasure. His wishes, his desires. He can manipulate and can create laws in ways that benefit him. The same power that allow him to banish one queen, the same power he's going to use to secure another queen, to take one. And that's what we see here in these verses. And in, this, in these verses, in all of chapter 1, 
What do you think the author is trying to make clear to us? If you you can remember the past two sermons, what do you think the author is trying to make clear to his readers and to us? He's making it clear that the Persian Empire is not a theocracy. The Persian Empire is not a theocracy. It is not an empire ruled and governed by Yahweh's word and Yahweh's law. It's an empire ruled and governed by worldly powers and one man, Xerxes the Great. Worldly power and a worldly king who has not bowed the knee to Yahweh. And the people of Israel at this time, they are under this power. They are under this king. Even the Jews who went back to Jerusalem to build a wall are still under the thumb of this empire. Yeah, they rebuilding the wall, but they're building the wall because the empire allowed them to do so. And the ones who are scattered throughout the nations, now living in a pluralistic world, surrounded by different cultures, beliefs, and lifestyles, they are different from their own. Now, this should sound familiar. There are striking similarities between what we see here in Esther and what we see in our time, for we don't live in theocracy as Christians in today's time. We do not live in a theocracy. We don't live in a world that is truly governed by God's word and God's law. We live in a fallen, pluralistic world controlled by worldly powers. That is true here in America. That is true globally. And that power does affect the lives of people for good and for evil. Believers all over the world face this. And this is the same thing is true for the two historical figures in the book before us. Because the author introduces them after he establishes who's in control of this world. Notice that. He doesn't introduce Esther Mordecai at the beginning of the book. It's after he establishes who's in control of this world. Who's in control of this empire? King Xerxes is in control. As I said in the first sermon, in this, in, in, in this history, in his history, in this part of history, the Persian Empire is the greatest empire on the face of the earth at this point in time. And that is true. They are the most powerful empire on the face of the earth, and one man controlled that empire. So this is what the author is making clear, that they are under the authority of worldly power. And for God's people, what does that mean? How does it impact the way that you live? So who are these historical figures? Esther and Mordecai. And the author introduces them by giving us that backstory. And their backstory is, is essential to understanding the rest of the book. Because this backstory will give us information that no one else in the book knows yet. No one else in the book knows the backstory. We do, because it helps us to be able to interpret the book. The author identifies their nationality and their ethnicity. Both of them are Jews. And they represent the Jewish people who did not return to Jerusalem. The ones who are still scattered among the nations. So the question for us is, does God still love those Jews? Or does he only love Ezra and Nehemiah and the ones who went back to rebuild the wall? What about the ones still scattered? What about the ones who could not go back? Does God still love them? Does he still care for them? What's Ezra's back? What's Nehemiah's backstory? Look at verse 5. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the capital, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish, 
a Benjaminite. The author is intentionally identifying him as a Jewish man, making it clear that he is a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin. And he's making it clear that that Mordecai, even though he has Jewish ancestors, he was not raised in Jerusalem. He was not born in Jerusalem. He was born in exile. He never got a chance to see the temple. He never got a chance to be part of the kingdom of God at its, at its glorious in its days. He was born in exile. Because three times in his verses, the author says, carried away, carried away, carried away, making it clear that this brother, though he was in exile, he still knew his Jewish roots. He still knew his Jewish identity. He still had his Jewish pride. So Mordecai is a Jewish man living in a Persian-controlled world. That's his reality. And the question for him is, how is, he, how is he functioning in this world? How is he functioning in this type of environment? Next, we have Esther's backstory. It's different from Mordecai's. The author tells us both her Hebrew name and her Persian name. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah, and her Persian name is, is Esther. And, and, and so some have suggested that he does this because it, it shows that Esther is caught between two identities, caught between two worlds. Have you ever felt like you've been caught between two worlds, two identities? Don't know who you really are. She's a young Jewish woman living in a Persian-controlled world, caught between two worlds, caught between two identities. She doesn't have her immediate family. Both parents have died, and her uncle Mordecai adopted her as his own daughter. And so so that, that's the background story of Esther and Mordecai, two Jewish cousins, two main historical figures in the book, both living in Susu, one of the capitals of the Persian Empire, both living in a world controlled by Xerxes the Great and his kingdom. And how are they functioning as Jewish people in this world? In that environment, that's a great question. How are they functioning? How are they surviving? Let's see. In Esther's background story, the author gives us one additional uh, description. He, he gives us a description of her physical appearance. Look at verse 7b. He said, the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Who does that sound familiar of? This is participation time. Who else is described this way in the book? Yes, the, 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 the first queen. So this description of, of Esther lets us know that she's going to be affected by this edict. That it's not necessarily going to pass her by. And she is. She's taken into the harem to be under the custody of Haggai. And she seems to be fully compliant on what's taking place. She doesn't seem to resist what is happening. She appears to go with the flow. She's participating in the process. And she even pleases and wins the favor of the man in charge of the harem. And in return, he gives her special privileges. She rises up as the favorite to win the competition, is the point of these verses. The favorite to become the next queen of Persia. Look at verse 8. So when the king's order and edict was proclaimed, 
And when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace, put in custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. And, when, and the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. So when you read that, what do you think? What are your thoughts about Esther? Is she a compromiser or is she a victim? What are your thoughts? Is she being disobedient to the Torah or is she just a victim of her circumstances? What are your thoughts? What do you think? What about Mordecai? What was his role? He appears to go with the flow too. There isn't any mentions of him trying to protect his daughter from being taken into the king's harem. Because he knew what happens. If you go to this place, you don't ever come back. Okay? That's what it means. Every young woman that is taken to this place, she never sees her family again. She belongs to the king. And so we have Mordecai does nothing. Seems to go with the flow. The only advice he gives her is he tells her, do not tell the people you are a Jew. Do not tell the people of your kindred, of your nationality, of your ethnicity. Keep that a secret. Let no one know that this is who you are. What are your thoughts about Mordecai? Is he a compromiser? Is he a victim? Does he have an agenda? What are your thoughts? Keep in mind that Esther and Mordecai, again, are Jewish cousins living in a Persian-controlled world, a world governed and ruled by a king who has absolute power and a king who uses that power without any consideration for how it affects your life. And right now, he needs a queen. And guess what? He's going to get one. And he uses his power to secure that queen. And Esther is seen as the favorite to become the next queen of Persia. And she, she is. She's fully engaged in this competition. That means she has and will continue to do what is expected of her. She will comply. Even going through the 12-month beautification process. And that's a process that gets every young woman ready for her one night with the king. One night to try to please him. And what you assume is taking place is actually taking place. Now, I don't need to tell you what's taking place. But you know what's taking place. And what's taking place is what's taking place. Verse 12. Now, when the time came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with the oil of myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for the women. And when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her to the harem, to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's unit, who was in charge of the concubines. And she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. Eventually, Esther's turns come, and she's taken in to the king's 
She goes into the king during his seventh year of his reign. She gets her one night. She does what the other women were expected to do. She does the same thing. And she succeeds. She wins the grace and favor with the king. The king sets the royal crown on her head. And she becomes the next queen of Persia. Verse 15. Now Esther was one in favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when she was taken to the king into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vastai. The king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. She, he granted a remission of taxes in the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. What are your thoughts about Esther? Is she a compromiser? Is she a victim? What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? Lost my place. Okay, here we go. Remember what I said at the beginning of the sermon. We all have historical figures that we see as heroes. This is true within Christianity. There are men and women of the faith that we, have, we hold up as examples for us. They have become models or even logos of what it means to be genuine, genuine believers or what it means to be faithful to God in the midst of adversity. But whitewashing can be an issue we run into. We can gloss over or even look over their flaws and failures and, and, and mistakes. All these heroes of the faith, have shades of gray about them. They're not black and white. You're not, I'm not. And so Mordecai and Esther aren't either. They have shades of gray about them, and we see that in these verses. And that's why we can't be too quick to judge them. Because that's what some, some commentators have done. They've, 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 they've judged them and said, oh, they're just compromisers of the faith. They, they represent what it means not to be faithful to Yahweh. Now others, they, 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 you can try to vindicate them by saying, oh, they're just being victims. Don't be too quick to hold them up as models of faithfulness. They could be compromised and they could be not. The author is not representing them as models of faithfulness. They aren't being held up as examples for us. The author is not trying to whitewash their history, their actions and decisions. He's simply telling us what happened. He's simply showing us what they did without commentary, without justification, without bias. And what we see is that life is in shades of gray. And I, that's something that we have to understand. The way power is used in this world will always be in shades of gray. Good and evil. The way the law is used in this world will be in shades of gray. Good and evil. And people have shades of gray about them too. They would do good things and they would do bad things. Even people saved by faith in Jesus Christ will have shades of gray about them. Because events and decisions and choices aren't always clear. Life isn't always black and white. Some situations and circumstances that you go through are truly outside your control. Sometimes you get caught up in stuff that's outside your control. But do you believe this? Look at your life. Look at the church here and the church globally. Have you ever felt worldly? 
Have you ever felt like the culture is controlling you? Have you ever felt like you're no different than your non-Christian neighbors, co-workers, and friends? Do you see yourself as a nominal Christian or a cultural Christian who's not really sold out for Jesus? You're not really radical enough for Jesus. All of us struggle here. We struggle because life is in shades of gray. We struggle because we have shades of gray about us as believers. And Paul says it best in Romans 7.21, For I find this law at work when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. That's life in shades of gray. For when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Is it evil out there or is it evil within me? Me. And you. Christian life isn't just 12 steps to a successful life, 12 steps to your best life now. I don't care what that means. That's not true. It's a mixture of falling down and getting back up again through the power of the Holy Spirit. You fall, you fail, you make mistakes, but you get back up again. That's all of us, myself included. This also means that at no point in our life can we stand on some higher moral ground that we built and look down on judgment on other believers we we deem to be compromisers of the faith. Because it's always easy to stand on your own righteousness when you're not faced with difficult decisions. It's always easy when you're not facing life-threatening choices. It's always easy when you're not the one under the hostility of an evil king, when it's not your life on the line. Please know that. Because when your life is on the line, it ain't that easy. Choices aren't that easy. It's easy when you're not marginalized. It's easy when you don't face persecution day in and day out to stand on your own goodness. But as soon as life deals you a bad hand, you're going to be singing to a different tune. You realize it ain't that easy. Karen Jobs in her commentary on Esther says, Life isn't always that neat and tidy. There comes a day when you find yourself in a situation where right and wrong are not so clearly defined. And every choice seems to be a troubling mixture of good and bad. That's life in shades of great. All right, my papers together. That's where Mordecai and Esther find themselves. Have you ever been in that situation? Have you ever faced that situation? Live life long enough and you will. Live life long enough and you will. And one day, the comfortable Christianity in America is going to know what that's like. One day. One day. We'll know what it's like for other brothers and sisters who have, who face persecution and things ain't always clear. It ain't always clear. And when we find ourselves in those situations, what's your only hope? What's going to be your only hope? What's going to be your only hope if one of your daughters get pregnant outside of marriage? Oh, yeah, I'm stepping on toes. Now, what's going to be your only hope? Hmm? It's going to be your only hope. 
Yes. So it's going to be your only hope if you lose your job. This is participation now. What's going to be your only hope if you lose your job? What's going to be your only hope if your kids don't turn out the way you want them to turn out? Jesus. What's your only hope if your marriage ain't what you want it to be? Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Because life ain't ever going to be neat and tidy. Your life ain't ever going to be neat and tidy. Your family ain't going to be neat and tidy. I don't care how much you control it, micromanage it. The fall happened to all of us. And it's falling on all of us. And eventually it's going to come to our home. And your kids and to your family, to your career. Don't let this country we live in deceive us into thinking we don't struggle with other, what other Christians struggle with. We do. We can hide it better here. That's what we do. We hide it. But I know you're struggling. I know you're struggling. You just show faith. I show faith. Again, where's your hope? It's Jesus. Jesus. None of us go through life without falling short. None of us go through life without making bad choices and bad decisions and mistakes at some point. None of us go through life without struggling with worldliness and looking more like the culture at times. That's why Christ gave us repentance. Because the Father knows that we ain't but dust. He knows we're going to fall short. That's why we're covered in his blood. That's why we have his righteousness. And that's why he went to the cross. If your disobedience and imperfections and failures can remove God's favor from your life, then the blood of Christ is losing its power. But we know that's not true. The blood will never lose its power. The blood will forever remain. But never lose your power of your life even when you fail. Trust in God's faithfulness and not your own. Trust in God's faithfulness and not the faithfulness of man. And not the faithfulness of the church. Trust in God's faithfulness. I told one of my friends, I said, um, Adam, he's a great, probably my best friend here. And I told him, I, I told him this, I said, I don't trust people I don't know, and I don't put nothing past people I do know, because people are fallen. That's why I told them. I trust nobody I don't know. I don't put nothing past people I do know, because we all have issues. We all have struggles. In John 2, Jesus himself said he knew what was in man. Listen to these words in John 2, verses 23 and 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He didn't need no one to bear witness about man, for he knew what was in man. We need to take that same advice from the words of your Savior. He knew what was in man. Trust in God's faithfulness. And I want each of you to find encouragement in this truth that the imperfections of God's people would not hinder his plans in their life. Does not. If it can, then he's not God. And he's not providentially in control and he's not sovereign if you can mess up his plan. 
Do you believe that? Do you believe that? And people seem to forget when it comes to culture, when it comes to societies, we seem to forget that when Adam and Eve fell, that's when the slippery slope happened. It wasn't even a slope. It was a landslide. That's when it happened. And God is in the process of redeeming that. It's his grace that we have not destroyed each other already. It's, that's grace. That's common grace. The fact that we even still alive. So God is in the process of bringing redemption of all things. God makes straight lines with crooked sticks. And we are the crooked sticks. And some of us need to accept that fact that's all we're ever going to be. But we're crooked sticks loved by Jesus. Crooked sticks redeemed by Jesus. Crooked sticks that rely on Jesus. Not in ourselves. Not in ourselves. If the church or individual Christians can frustrate God's plan, then he's not God. If God's plans in the world is totally dependent upon the good and right choices of his people, then guess what? We're all doomed. We're all doomed. Our God is at work within creation, even through the imperfections of his people. Dr. Kelly um, is one of my, my systematic theology professor. Doug Kelly is his name And when I was in RTS Charlotte. And in our systematic class, he says something that I haven't, haven't forgot all these years. He says, he said, God handles the sins of his people sinlessly. I didn't know what he meant by that then, but I think I do now. That somehow, even when we make mistakes, somehow he, it works out to our good and further his kingdom. I don't know how that is. I, I can't put my mind around it because I know I don't always make the wisest cho- choices. I don't always make the best. I know I make mistakes. And does my mistakes change the fact that God is sovereign over my life? No, it doesn't. Now, are there consequences? Yeah, there are consequences. But it doesn't change the fact that he is at work, that he is moving. And his hand of providence is often unseen and invisible to us. But it is at work in this world at all times, at every moment. That's why trust in his faithfulness and not your own. At times you have to remember what God has did for you in the past to help you in the present. Well, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Has God ever left you hanging? Are you sure? Are you positive? Are you, are you sure? Okay. And will he leave you hanging now? Will he forsake you now? Will he abandon you now? Expect your God to move on your behalf. If he did not spare his own son for his enemies, then how would he not use his son to help those who are part of his family now? If he did not spare Jesus when you were God's enemy, how will he not use Jesus at this very moment to give you what you need to press on, to persevere in this life? When you doubt yourself, do not doubt your God's faithfulness to you, to your family, 
he's moving, he's at work. The Heidelberg Catechism, question one. This is probably my, my, one of my favorite um, catechism questions. And this is one I, that I recommend that you write down that you probably want to memorize. It says, what is, your, what is your only comfort in life and death? Here's the answer. That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my hand. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Indeed, that all things must work together for my good. And the church said, Amen. Wherefore, by the Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life, and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready for now to live unto him. That is your only hope in life and death as a believer. That is it. That's all it's ever going to be is in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for being this only hope. And it's a hope that does not fail. And it's a hope that's not dependent upon my perfections and me making all the right choices. But it's dependent upon a God who is 100% faithful at all times, at all moments in this world to his people, to his beloved. And so I pray for each of us as we go out today, help us to not lose sight of who is the actual cornerstone of our life, who is the cornerstone of our existence as believers, and that is Christ and Christ alone. So give us the humility and the faith to believe and trust and know that you are faithful. I need that because I've been struggling the past few weeks believing this. So help my unbelief as we move out and engage this world one more day, one more week. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Please stand as we close our service.